flip with me to Luke, the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 80 will be our text this evening. So let's go ahead and read that, and then we'll pray. Luke chapter 1, verse 67, these are the words of God. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he visited and accomplished redemption for his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to make ready his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to direct our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the desolate regions until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we, as we uh, approach your throne of grace right now, we ask that your Holy Spirit would illumine our minds. Search our hearts, Lord, as oftentimes they are caves where sin likes to hide out. Search our minds, too, lest we think for one second that you don't know what is going on in our heads. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we have uh, come to it, and we can come to it to learn, be transformed, and thus walk in obedience. Grant us this peace today. Grant the world the shalom it so desperately needs. Open our eyes so that we might behold wondrous things out of your, your law. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, this is the uh, final message in our short Advent series called The Meaning of Christmas. And we started in week one, if you remember, talking about darkness, which is a, a great metaphor for sin, and Jesus being the light, Jesus being the one who redeems us from the darkness. He is the great deliverer whose gospel brings illumination to our lives. So that theme popped up several times in the course of that, our series, and it's going to pop up again here in Luke chapter one. In week two, we talked about hope, and hope from the story of Simeon and Anna, if you remember, as representatives of Israel, they worked in the temple and they were longing for redemption. They, they sort of typify what Israel was waiting for. They were longing for redemption and deliverance. And last week we talked about joy and how the Magi rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, the text says, once they saw the star over the place where the child was born. And last week we talked about the creation word, the inscripturated word, and the incarnate word all coming together rather neatly in that particular passage, teaching us the way to true and everlasting joy in the Holy Spirit. Now the goal of this series has simply been to take these different Christmas texts, which are all different snapshots of the story, and look at what we might find therein. And oftentimes when we come to the scriptures, 
we do so detached and removed from what the original people would have seen and what they would have felt. And the Bible does tell us a story, but it's not a story like a fairy tale. And that's sort of important to note when we talk about the Bible being a story. We don't mean it's like, in, you know, once upon a time. It's not a fairy tale. It's theological history. And Christmas is absolutely theological history because as we confess, Jesus is theology incarnate. Theology just simply meaning the Word of God, the, the Word about God. He is theology incarnate. He is the Word of God who took on flesh. Divinity came and wrapped himself in humanity. So it's important to take note of the events surrounding the birth of the Christ because repeatedly the Bible points out all over the place that the coming of the, the Messiah is all about light and hope and joy and peace abruptly entering into a world of darkness and despair, murder and consternation. Um, the most stark contrast being what we saw last week with Herod who had murder in his hearts and the Magi who had worship in their hearts. So the events, the people, the circumstances, all of it is significant. All of it lays the groundwork for the task of the kingdom. And since the Bible tells us to taste and see, we need to thus know and feel. We need to know what took place, and we need to feel what it is God would have us to feel. Hope, joy, peace, these are the gifts given to us from God for us to enjoy. So embrace them. Take them up, for they are yours in Christ Jesus. Now tonight we're going to look at what is known as the Benedictus, the Benedictus of Zechariah. Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist. And the Latin word Benedictus comes from the opening phrase there in his, uh, his song in verse 68. Benedictus Dominus Deus Israel, which means in Latin, blessed or praise be the Lord God of Israel. Now, in this particular canticle, which is often what it's called, a canticle being a song, like the Song of Mary, the Magnificat, this particular canticle sheds more light on what it is that these first century participants, think of Mary and Joseph, the Magi, Simeon and Anna, Zechariah, all of them, what these particular first century participants would have anticipated and expected when the Word took on flesh and dwelt among us. So when you read these canticles and you see these songs, it tells us a lot about what they were thinking. It tells us a lot about what they may have been feeling and anticipating because they were long expecting the Messiah to come. So what did they feel? What did they believe the Word of God become flesh would do for, do for them? What did they think that these events would accomplish? Those are the questions we'll answer tonight. So let's look at our text, and you can just follow along as we go. The song of Zechariah, and Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, we're told here in verse 67. And that's a mark of prophecy, by the way, being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's usually language about prophecy. The song can essentially be summarized as follows. <clears throat> Part one is a blessing. Part one is a blessing of God. Zechariah, he's very grateful for two very, very important things. First, God has been faithful and loyal to his promise to David. That's in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17. That's when God made a promise to build David's house. He was going to build a house for his name. So he, Zechariah sees this fulfillment as being a, uh, something related 
to the fact that God has been faithful and loyal to his promise to David. And the way that God is loyal to his promise to David, which happened a thousand years before this, is by God raising up a Davidic king. God raised up a Davidic king. And he says at verse 68 that God has, quote, visited. Whenever you see that language, you should always, in the Bible, it's always used as a term of God's mighty acts of redemption. When God visits his people, uh, oftentimes it's a, a symbol of judgment. It's certainly a symbol of grace and mercy, too, because uh, he's come and he will deliver. He will judge his enemies and he will deliver his people. But he visited and, quote, accomplished redemption for his people. Another thing that should trigger you, whenever you read the word redeem or redemption, you should immediately think of the Exodus rescue event when God saved his people from Egypt. Uh, the word redeemed is simply always echoing back these parts of Scripture and the great redemption that everybody knew about, that everybody thought was the most glorious redemption possible, was God redeeming Israel from the clutches of slavery in Egypt. Now, the prophets of old, they had prophesied another new exodus. An exodus of all exoduses was coming. And here, Zechariah prophesies about it. So God, God has visited and he has redeemed his people in the coming of Jesus. That's what he says so far. And in verse 69, it says that God's faithfulness to David looks like a horn of salvation coming. Now, I don't, has anybody here ever gotten into a fight with a horned animal? <laughs> It wouldn't be a pleasant situation. Um, I've seen Nathan square up to a donkey once, but uh, <laughs> a hor horned animals were more likely to win a battle against a non-horned animal. That's just kind of just how it works. Uh, a goat running up against a dog, or you know those types of situations, the horned animal would typically win, and that's because the horn in Scripture is something that indicates strength and victory. Uh, horns were used in battles as well to summon the army, to declare war, to confuse the enemy. Uh, if the bugle blows indistinctly, who will get ready for battle, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians. Listen to Psalm 18.2. Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Rock and fortress and deliverer goes with refuge, shield, and horn, which is all to say when he brings up this notion of a horn of salvation coming, the coming child is David's servant and he will be victorious. He is the king. So the, God raised up a horn of salvation is essentially saying God put his prize fighter in the ring and he's winning and he will win. That's the horn of salvation. So that's the first thing, this idea of David and this conquering king, this victorious king. But the second thing that Zechariah focuses on is the patriarch Abraham and God's covenant with him to bless the nations. And speaking of God's covenants, Zechariah confesses in verse 71 that salvation and deliverance from the enemies of God is part of God's plan to enact and protect his covenants of old. Far too often, Christians today disconnect the Old Testament from the New. And it's a really a, a sad state of affairs because they go together. 
Uh, you don't disconnect law and gospel. You don't disconnect old from the New Testament. The, the old builds and crescendos in the new, but it's one giant story of redemption, and all of it's intertwined, and all of it matters. So here, God is, uh, Zechariah remembers that God, when he is faithful to the Abrahamic covenant, certain things happen. Certain things happen. And this is in verses 74 through 75. God's people are rescued from their enemies. And when God's people are rescued from their enemies, they serve the Lord without fear all the days of their life. Note that, because we're going to come back to that, especially when it pertains to peace. But when you are rescued, you're rescued from something, but you're also rescued to something. You're not just brought out of it and then you're given no responsibility. You're brought out of dominion of sin into the dominion of Christ. And so there's a transfer that happens. There's expectations and so on and so forth. Now, what we have learned so far in this song is that in, in, in the spirit of certain texts, you think of uh, like Psalm 106, you could read that later and connect the dots to this text. But Zechariah, he focuses on two main aspects of the coming of the Messiah, and those things dovetail together for the great new Exodus event. That is David and Abraham, two of the giants in the Old Testament, two of the core covenants to God's covenant of grace, the covenants that God made with David to build his house, the covenants that God, the covenant that God cut with Abraham when he said, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation and you're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars. Those things converge here. Now, the first century Jews who were faithful to God, in, they were always in great expectation of these promises. They clung to these promises. They knew there was a Davidic king. God didn't just promise to raise up David's son in, as Lord and then just forget about it. God doesn't forget. He doesn't have cosmic amnesia. So they were waiting anxiously for these things to take place. God would remember Abraham. God would remember David. And he would decisively act in accordance to those promises. And all that's because, rest assured, church, as we are facing tumultuous times again, God is faithful. Beat that into your head when you start to worry, when you start to thrust yourself into insecurity and, and you start to waver and waffle because you're, you're concerned about the way the world's going. Yes, we know they're conspiring evil against us. We understand that. It's plain. It's obvious. But God is faithful. He's faithful. So part one of this text focuses on the blessing of God for His covenant promises, His covenant loyalty, His covenant righteousness. Jesus is coming. Abraham and David are cashing in on that great promise. This is glorious. The next section, which is part two, concerns Zechariah's son, John the baptizer. Two things are of note. And you can look at verse 76. First, John would be called the prophet of the Most High who would go on before the Lord to make ready his ways. This is another text, and certain translations embolden it. The LSB, the NASB, they always would capitalize those references to the Old Testament, which makes it really handy. But this text matters for a couple of reasons. First, John the baptizer is coming in the spirit of Elijah. In the spirit of Elijah and, and, and in the fulfillment of Malachi 3.1 and Malachi chapter uh, 4, 5, and 6, John the baptizer would be the last great Old Testament prophet. He's the last one. That's it. 
I mean, you could say Jesus is the last one as well, but you know, as far as like non-God-man people, John the baptizer is the last of the great prophets. And what would he do? Well, second, he would go before the Lord. In order to prepare the way of the Messiah, John would be, in accordance with Isaiah 43, that's the reference here, he would be the great herald of the coming Exodus event. That's a lot of pressure. But John the baptizer would be the great herald who would, almost like Moses, but also like Elijah, prepare God's people for the Exodus. He is the one who's going to make straight make the path straight for the Messiah King. And he would, in verse 77, give God's people knowledge of salvation, which comes through the forgiveness of sins, all of which is predicated on the tender mercies of God. And John the Baptist did that. He was out in the wilderness preaching repentance. Israel, you need to get ready. The Messiah is coming. He was the one who was fulfilling Isaiah 40, verse 3. He was the one fulfilling Malachi 3 and 4. This future salvation that's spoken of here would include deliverance from Israel's political oppressors. Any of you want to be delivered from your political oppressors right now? The, the ones that just keep getting put into office, right? We're on that treadmill right now. But the main issue here is whether or not Israel will be ready. Israel's readiness to be restored by the divine favor is the question. Will God's people repent? Will God's people prepare themselves? Will they listen to John the Baptist? Will they listen to, to those who are preaching the word? Uh, that's the question. Are they going to listen to the one in the, the voice in the wilderness who is prepping them for the king? And then there's a switch. It's interesting in, the, in this narrative, there's a switch in the last part of verse 78. And here, Zechariah focuses back on Isaiah 9. The sunrise, that's a reference, a reference by the way, to the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness in Malachi 4.2. The sunrise will come and shine upon those who sit in darkness. And this is a part I want to focus on tonight. Jesus will, quote, direct our feet into the way of peace. He will direct our feet into the way of peace of peace. And in verse 80, we have this summary passage, and it reminds us of the boy Samuel in 1 Samuel 2 and 3, which describes John the Baptist, who was growing and becoming strong in spirit. And that should trigger you too, because just like his cousin Jesus, he's growing in wisdom and stature in the fear of the Lord. So that's the Benedictus, the song of Zechariah. And I want to consider tonight how we would apply this. The word peace has its root in a very well-known Hebrew word, and I'm sure you've all heard it before. The word is shalom. Shalom. The ancient rabbis, they would pair peace and truth together, knowing that those two things do belong together. But some would dare suggest that peace takes priority over truth. And what they meant was, it was far more important to be at peace with God than win an argument with your neighbor. It was far more important to be at peace with God than winning any argument with someone. And this, of course, doesn't mean that truth is expendable, that we shouldn't defend truth, especially in a situation where people would rather keep a false peace going, sort of like modern churches and their response to the abortion holocaust. I'm not surprised the way they responded to the COVID-19 self-inflicted status pandemic experiment. 
Why would I expect them to suddenly grow a conscience when, when they haven't for abolition work for 40 years? So we don't, want to, we don't want to keep a false peace going. That's not what we're talking about here. The shalom of God is, is actually rooted in the echad of God, the Hebrew word for one. The peace of God, which is the, and by the way, by definition, peace is simply this tranquility in our relationship with God speaking not horizontally with neighbor but vertically right now that's what shalom is ultimately it's a peace in the achad of god the the oneness of god and that's all stems from the fact that god is one so uh, put on your systematic theology hats and buckle up because here we go theologians often speak of the simplicity of god and we did our foundation series i went over this in in the doctrine of god but We talk about the simplicity of God, meaning that he is not composed of parts. God is not composed of parts. You know, one part of him's holiness, another part's love, another part's wrath, and so on. That is not how we should think of God. It's a wrong view of God, frankly. The simplicity of God essentially means that God's very nature and his being is a unified whole, and that his attributes are whole along with his being. So it's not like a piece of pizza where this slice is God's wrath, this is his holiness, this is his grace, and all of that. There's no sections of the pizza here. The whole thing is God. God is all of those things. He's not a composite God made up of various particles mixed and matched in there. It's another way of saying all that is in God is God. It's not that God possesses holiness. He is holiness. God doesn't merely possess peace. He is peace. God isn't made up of wisdom and power and love and grace and truth and so on. He is all of those things at once. That's the simplicity of God. That's why we confess with the Christmas song, His law law is love and His gospel is peace. God is the gospel. God is peace. He is all of those things. And those concepts exist in the world and we experience those things because God is. Now, the reason we went into the theological weeds a bit there for a moment, we're back, don't panic. The reason we went there is because peace, just like joy and just like hope, is oftentimes looked for in all of the wrong places. We want peace in the midst of the plague, so we go looking for the evolutionary proponents, the feigned experts in their white coats. We want peace in the midst of political strife, so we go looking for the next candidate to try to fill the vacuum when they're just participating in the charade anyway. Uh, We want peace in the midst of war, so what do we do? We grab the biggest bombs. We, We think we can outdo the other side and then create peace. And that's exactly what the Pax Romana was, the peace of Rome. The Caesars would go, they would conquer, and they would hold a sword to your throat and say, you will be at peace with us or you will die. Sure. Sounds great. Can I get you some wine? You know, that's, we're promoting peace in the world. (laughs) Okay, by violence, we want peace in all the wrong places. Everyone wants peace, but few want to obtain it from the Prince of Peace. And this brings us to the reality of the human condition and why Christmas matters. In Reformed theology, we believe in what's called the doctrine of total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity. There's a ton of confusion on the doctrine, and even uh, just last week I had to explain it to someone who didn't quite have it down. 
Regarding this important doctrine, there are two main views, both of which had their early teachers. We have the Augustinian view, which was what fueled John Calvin and the Protestant Reformation, and Augustinian obviously referring to St. Augustine. And then we also have the Pelagian view, which was condemned by various church councils. Pelagius was really at war with Augustine, and those two sort of duked it out in the 4th and 5th centuries. And those two views were very, very, very different. And both views hinged upon the doctrine of man. The question is, is man totally depraved? Or is he only partially depraved? How deep does the sin go in us? Just how eroded away is the image of God in man? Can man be righteous on his own volition? Is it, are we just sort of neutral and we can choose God or not choose God? Those are the questions these two men fought out. Now, Pelagius, he was, again, a rival to Augustine. He said that man isn't totally depraved and that he can very much be righteous. He's drowning in the waters of sin, but given the right motivation, he can reach his hand up to God, and God will most certainly bring him out of the water. We call this synergism, God and man working together in concert for the salvation of man. So we're broken, but not that broken. We can reach up and grab God's hand, and he'll be there, and we'll take it. You know, that's the Pelagian view. Augustine came along and said, no, the Bible is clear. No one is righteous, no, not one. What did Paul mean by that? After sinning in the garden, man is not completely obliterated in his being and his ontology. He's still walking and talking. Man still exists. He still functions in the world. However, sin, being covenantal and ethical rebellion, has placed on man a spiritual blindness, an ethical depravity, a covenantal or even a judicial depravity. Augustine simply taught what the Bible taught. The depravity of man is total in that it touches every single area of a man's existence and his function. So sin, it's not like you're as depraved as you could be. It's not that. That's not what we mean by total depravity. We simply mean that every area of you and what makes you you is depraved and touched by sin. So man's thinking his passion, his, his desire, his speech, his doing, all of those things are bent in a proclivity and a propensity to, to wickedness, evil desires. Jesus said it's not what goes into a man, but what comes out of him that defiles him. The heart being fractured, broken, a heart of stone that needs to become a heart of flesh, which is what Ezekiel would, would later talk about. So man is not partially incapacitated in his sin. He's dead in his sin and trespasses, meaning he's not able or willing to reach his hand up out of the waters of the sea so that God can take his hand and rescue him. He's not willing to do that, and he's not able to do that. Why? Because he's dead at the bottom of the sea. He's dead in his trespasses and sins in the bottom of the sea. Entropy. Entropy is simply the sort of the, the second law of thermodynamics, everything that can go wrong will go wrong, or things break down. Entropy, for example, is evident in creation. We see that. Uh, things happen in creation. Things break down. The leaves fall every year, every fall. And, uh, of course, we know in the springtime they'll come back, and, and that's a wonderful resurrection of sorts. But entropy is, is evident. It's self-evident in the world. It's most self-evident as you look at yourself in the mirror. 
You're getting older. Sorry to tell you that. I'm talking to myself too. We're getting older. And what happens when you get older? Do you get more fit? Does your body stop hurting as much? <laughs> we desire those things. But that's the principle of entropy. Things break down. And part of that is because what did God say in the garden? Eat this and you'll surely die. There's a breakdown in our experience of the world. Things break down. Our bodies break down and so on. But part of the post-millennial future is a rolling back of entropy as covenantal obedience and epistemological self-consciousness becomes increasingly sanctified. In other words, things will change as men are awakened to the gospel. They start acting and living in light of their profession. That's epistemological self-consciousness. We start to know, yes, I know God, I know his holiness, and I'm going to act like that. He becomes more sanctified, more consistent in his person and his being. And when man becomes more sanctified, guess what happens to the world around us? God takes the curse and removes it. That is the post-millennial future. I believe I, I want to live to 200. I don't think it will happen, but I think my great-great-grandkids might. As long as we stop polluting the air and the water and the food. <laughs> so we have work to do. But that's the future. When entropy is rolled back and God's, as, as God's people are covenantally obedient to him, the curses then are pulled away. And you might say, why does this have to do anything with Christmas? Well, here's why. Christmas was a discontinuous event where the Son of God abruptly showed up as a man. No one expected it. No one knew exactly what it was going to look like. Even the angels who gave word to Mary and Joseph didn't really have a full picture and understanding of what that was going to be. But it was an abrupt event. It was, history was marching on as it was, and there's this discontinuous event. God took on flesh, the most abrupt thing that could ever happen to man in his existence. History didn't conjure this up. Man didn't conjure this up. No one sat around and said, hey, great idea, let's have God become a man and then let's make it happen. It, it, we can't do that, and nor could we ever think of such a thing. God did it. The work of Christ on the cross reverses the punishment of sin, it curtails the problem of entropy, and it draws us into God's sanctifying of history, creation, and man. And the reason that we need the shalom or the peace of God is not because we and God had an argument and we parted ways, but because we spit upon the holiness of God. We killed ourselves spiritually, and we now find ourselves in desperate need of Holy Spirit awakening. We need a Holy Spirit awakening, and we need to take a deep dive into the ocean. <laughs> we need God, rather, to take a deep dive into the ocean and drag our dead selves onto the shore where the Spirit can resurrect us by breathing on us and into us, and only then are we made alive, and only then are we made at peace with God. No one, no one reaches their hand towards God on their own volition. No one. That's what total depravity teaches. And I say all this because that's exactly why Christmas matters. That's exactly why the incarnation matters. The peace God gives us is a peace that deals with the problem of sin. It deals with the problem of sin. It's a peace that is quite capable of calming any storm, settling any stomach, in ailing any malady. 
It's a peace that Paul says in Philippians surpasses all understanding. It doesn't make sense all the time, but it's a peace that's there and it surpasses understanding. It's a peace that can only be applied by the Holy Spirit. Notice the connection. And there was more of a connection than I assumed after I was digging into it more this morning. Romans 8.6 says this, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. The mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Or Romans 14.17, which reads, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. More connections between the Holy Spirit and peace. Just when you thought there could be no more possible connections, we have in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul would often in his letters, thank God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace be with you. The Trinity is always present there. Grace and peace is his reference to the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace be with you. He tells us in Ephesians 4, 3 that we ought to be diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's all over the Scriptures. There's this connection between what the Holy Spirit does in us to give us peace. Peace with God. Peace with neighbor. So what is the meaning of Christmas? It is this. Christmas disrupts the false peace of fallen men. It disrupts the false peace of fallen men. That is, it shakes fallen men out of their depravity where they conspire together against the Lord and His anointed. It shatters our incessant need to pretend that we don't need to be at peace with God. And there's billions of people on this planet who are in that incessant need. We don't need to be at peace with, with God. We have Allah. We don't need peace with God. We, ha- we have our, our false prophets. We have our cults. We have our... F- our atheism, our agnosticism, that is someone stuck in this incessant need to not want peace with God. The only place you can get it. Christmas disrupts it all. It smites our pride. It disrupts our self-pity and it removes our vain glory. That's what Christmas does. Christmas dethrones man. There you go. Put that on a card. Send it out to your friends. Christmas dethrones man. And the only way to dislodge a false peace is to place a true peace in its place. That's ultimately why Christmas matters. The peace we get from God transforms history. It transforms us. It transforms history. It transforms our hearts. It transforms our minds. It transforms our social institutions. And it's meant to transform nations as they are discipled in the way of Yahweh's law. As they are taught to obey what Christ commanded. That's where peace comes. The enemies of God are defeated when they yield themselves to the peace that Christ offers. And listen, this is what's great about the Christmas story. God doesn't show up when everything is neat and orderly, when we get ourselves morally cleaned up and put together as if we could ever do such a thing. If we learn anything from Zechariah's song is that God doesn't visit us on our terms. He doesn't visit us on our terms. He visits on his terms. No one went into heaven and forced the hand of Jesus, the Son of God, to take on flesh and dwell among us. Nobody wanted that. And what makes the great rescue plan of Christmas so marvelous is the fact that God remembered His covenant and acted out of sheer, unmitigated grace. That's it. 
He remembered his covenant and acted on it. That's it. He didn't look on you, me, all, any of us and say, they're so great, I should die for their sin. He didn't show up when we had it all together. The reason Zechariah says that Jesus, uh, Jesus is the light coming into the world to direct our feet into the way of peace is because we don't know the way of peace. We need to have that path illuminated for us. God doesn't show up and supply peace to the earth only to turn around and go back to the heavens because, well, we just had enough peace as it is. No, he came to bring peace because we don't know the way of peace. We are totally depraved wretches apart from Christ, unable to save ourselves. God resurrects because we are dead. God saves because we are in bondage. God gives joy because we are curmudgeons. God gives hope because we are in dire straits. God gives peace because apart from Christ, we are enemies of God. Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. That's what the angelic host sang to the shepherds. Peace on earth with whom those he is well pleased with. Uh, what a, an, an amazing picture that is. We are rescued so that we might dedicate our lives to him. We are reconciled and given this peace so that we might walk in the way of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said, for they shall be called sons of God, Matthew 5, 9. We have been given peace so that we might proclaim peace. And this means that we must not look for peace apart from Christ. Christ is the arche. He is the integration point of all things, and peace is no different. He is the one that gives us peace. He is the one that gives us His Holy Spirit. So, church, you want peace in your soul? Then come to Christ. You want peace in your family? Come to Christ. You want peace in the nations? Then go and proclaim Christ. He is our peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the challenge found therein. Lord, the miraculous workings of the Christmas story is shocking and glorious at the same time. We thank you, triune God, that you have decided from before the beginning of space and time that you would send your Son to rescue the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundations of the, of the world. We are grateful for your wisdom. Father, we ask and pray that as we work through these texts, as we see the Christmas story in all of its glory, that you would challenge us and motivate us, God, that your church would rise up and proclaim this way of peace. So would you aid us in that great task? Would you capture our minds with your holiness, capture our hands with your grace, and capture our feet, Lord, so that we might go and proclaim it? In Christ's name. I pray. Amen.